Hello and welcome to episode 803 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hi. Hey. Yesterday we talked about why no one has gotten a one-year opt-out or an opt-out after one year. Today there are opt-out after one year rumors. Oh yeah? Who? Yeah. Buster only... Tweeted Wait, can I he, guess? Can I guess? Sure. There aren't that many players left, so... Ian Desmond. Uh, no, I, Desmond rumors were just one-year contract, period, I think. Uh-huh. But only tweeted that the Mets and UNS Cespedes are discussing a three-year deal that would have an opt-out after the first year. Oh my gosh. Imagine telling you, even three months ago, that Cespedes was going to get a three-year deal. I mean, think about it, okay? Cespedes... When he came over and nobody had any idea what he'd do, got a four-year deal. And now he's coming off of a season in which he was like a five-win player. And he's been, you know, a reliably three- to four-win player in his career. And for two months of the season, there was actual conversation about whether he was so good that he should be an MVP uh-huh. for two months of performance. Yep. And uh, and now he's going to get a three-year deal from the Mets. <laughs> right. Not yeah. even from a – I mean, nothing – look, n- not even I, – I don't, I don't even uh, – I don't know if I can say it without making it seem like just the Mets. But it seems like especially because it's just the Mets. Like the, they're the team that he – I don't know. You would maybe – you would sort of think that he would view this as a – slap in the face coming from the Mets. Like if it were, if he just went out in the market, didn't give it, give it to him. Well, fine. He can accept that. It, it is what it is. But you know, he did all these heroics for the Mets. He celebrated with the Mets and for them to then start negotiations in like the two year range, you would think would be a giant turnoff of the conversation. Like the, it's just, it, it sort of sounds like the sort of low ball that the player ends up holding against you, like, you know, John Lester and the Red Sox uh, extension offer that one time, you know? Yeah. And so uh, it, it almost seems le- least likely that he would sign a humble contract with the Mets of all teams. Uh, like, it's like, it's as though he's almost taking a pay cut. Yeah. There's another rumor about a five-year offer from the Nationals. So maybe he ends up taking that one. Unless... That's not the Tinder one, though, is it? <laughs> no, I don't think so. What what was the Tinder story? I saw an allusion to it, but somebody on Twitter who I think I don't know enough about him to say definitively, but my sense was that he is a fake rumor Twitter guy, as uh-huh. you know, we know about we know about those guys. I don't know if he is, but my impression in the brief skim of the situation was that he is uh, was reporting him to the Nationals, and part of his reporting uh, was that. Sub- Supposedly, there was a woman who was a match with him on Tinder in the Washington area. And <laughs> he said that he was going to be in the Washington area around that time. And that then he offered her $5,000 to not say anything. And uh, <laughs> she, the least realistic part of this is that she said no. It's really important to me that instead of getting $5,000 in American currency, I tell a rando with 57 <laughs> followers on Twitter so that he can tweet it and no one will believe him. Right. <laughs> well, that sounds legit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
this this Nationals rumor is coming from Ken Rosenthal, who generally has better sourcing than some guy on Twitter who's talking to some person on Tinder. So yeah. anyway, so he might take the longer one unless unless he thinks he's like a pillow contract candidate just because there's been so little interest or at least this has dragged on for so long and, and maybe he thinks there isn't much of a market for him right now. Although he'd be the strangest pillow contract candidate ever. I mean, coming off yeah. by far his best year. Normally, the pillow contract is a way to reestablish your value when it is at an all-time low. This right. would be like what we talked about with Upton, where it's just a, a, an acknowledgement that the market got away from you for whatever circumstance. He's not going to be seen as more valuable in a year than he is right now. But there are other forces at play. Sometimes supply and demand gives things. I mean, you know, gold is not any more valuable today than it was yesterday or 10 years ago or anything, except the market says it is. I mean, it's not like you can actually do more with gold now. Like, uh-huh. like wow, gold has sure rehabilitated its image. Wow, gold has really made some improvements. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't interested in gold before, but since it, you know, learned how to hit the slider, now I'm really interested in gold. Gold is gold. And yet, you know, the value of gold obviously changes a lot. And so maybe the value of Cespedes will just be different in a year because somebody deems it so. Yeah. Could be. Are you at all surprised that the Astros didn't sign Chris Davis, or that like there wasn't? That seemed like such a a underexplored match to me. Why? Well, because they, I believe that they probably have money. Uh huh. They've been carrying way below, you know, way payrolls much lower than they could afford for years. If they saved any of that and invested it in something like, for instance, gold, uh, <laughs> they'd be doing okay. Uh, right now and they have a you know a ton of guys who are cross cost controlled so you know they should be able to spend money you you would think they should be able to spend money and still be doing okay uh and uh first base is kind of their one place where they don't have a guy and chris davis fits what we know they like in hitters right yeah unless guys with power yeah unless it's really the right-handed aspect that plays up in minute made uh, and he's not right-handed enough. But yeah, uh, Chris Davis uh, seems like if ever they were going to give a free agent contract to somebody, uh, at least to a hitter, he would be the type of guy and this would be the type of need. Maybe they just, maybe it's just what we were talking about. It, his aging outlook looks particularly ghastly. And uh, they did the actuarial tables and said, uh, well, we only like that guy when he's 24. Right. Okay. I want to get to a few more emails. I will start with one about another player that the A's traded. This is from Austin, who says, just saw, just saw a story about Josh Donaldson and got to thinking about how much benefit of the doubt Billy Bean got last offseason. After looking back, it really seems like a fail. Am I right, or does Bean deserve more slack than I'm giving? So Bean obviously did get criticism for that deal at the time. I don't remember what we said about it. I wrote something at Grantland that was pretty defensive of him. I mean, it sort of started with the premise that this is weird and doesn't seem to make sense and then tried to figure out why it might make sense. Yeah. And I think the the headline probably made made me sound more bullish about it than I was in the text. And so because of that, there's this one random guy on Twitter who tweets me every oh, yeah, that's three right. months or so to say, to say, hey, Ben, how's the, how's the Josh Donaldson deal going? I guess that has been a, a fulfilling exercise for him. 
So it was definitely strange at the time. And so he got some flack. And then I think when a deal seems really strange, there is a natural kind of equal and opposite reaction to try to figure out what they were thinking and probably stronger with someone who has the track record of Billy Bean. And I think we talked about at the time, or maybe we've talked about other times, whether someone with a good track record should get some more benefit of the doubt. Like, should Billy Bean, who does something weird, get at least more of an effort to explain what he's thinking than, say, Dave Stewart, who does weird things but hasn't really proven that he's a good GM yet? And I think it's it's reasonable to do that. You can get into trouble, obviously, if you're just bending over backward to try to praise every move a GM makes. But there are, you know, previous examples of things being did that maybe seemed surprising or wrong to some people and turned out well. Anyway, I guess the most positive interpretation of that trade in retrospect is the A's won 68 games. So even if you put MVP Josh Donaldson on the team, it doesn't really make much of a difference from a competitive standpoint. They got Franklin Barreto, who is now a top 20 position player prospect in baseball, and they got some other stuff. <laughs> you know, like, again, the most positive interpretation, I think baseball reference says that Brett Lurie was an average player, if you factor in his defense. So they got... An average season from him, and they got half a season of average pitching from Kendall Graveman, and they have Sean Nolan, who wasn't good in the majors, but was good in AAA and is still under team control for a while. And they traded Brett Laurie for a couple guys, so they still have those guys. So anyway, that would be the, I guess, the, the defense. I mean, it's hard to defend because Josh Donaldson was the MVP and had a career year. And I don't know if you can blame Bean for that. I mean, I think the most reasonable expectation was that we'd seen the best Josh Donaldson already. You know, he's going into his age 29 season. There was no real reason to expect him to have a career year. Uh, and he did. And so that makes it look worse. But I'm guessing that if he could do it over again, Bean probably doesn't do it. So in that sense, it's certainly a fail. Yeah. I mean, clearly, you okay, so there, there's two ways to talk about a trade after the fact. The one is whether it was a, quote, fail, uh, yeah. which is what Rob Nyer called in his big book of baseball blunders a blunder, which is a mistake that uh, is not just a mistake in retrospect, but uh, that uh, you could have seen coming. And so does this, with more information with more knowledge about the pieces involved, can you then take that information and go back to the time and see how there were errors in process and that even as a concept, the trade didn't make sense or made even less sense than you realized at the time. Uh Uh, And the second is, did he lose the trade? And that's just results, right? I mean, somebody loses a baseball game, that doesn't mean they failed the baseball game. They just lost because somebody's going to lose. And it's virtually, I mean, it's crazy to say this because it's one guy with one year, but it's almost, oh, well, no, I guess, I mean, no, because Barreto. I was going to say it's almost impossible to imagine him winning this by, you know, any objective standard, uh, but Barreto, of course. Uh, Barreto is the, the great hope. Yes. You know, Graveman and Nolan, 
are just they're just not going to do it. They're not going to be those guys. Uh, and if anything, their stocks have dropped. I would say since uh, since he got them, but they were never really going to uh, be the kind of players who could overwhelm a MVP season from Josh Johnson at something close to the major league minimum. Uh, and then you know the guys that they got for Laurie are are just kind of guys. They're not really uh, seen as any particular upside plays. Uh, but Barreto is a potential star. So it's Thompson, was, Thompson was making over four million, by the way. I mean, you know, still obviously yeah. a, a great, great, great deal. But yeah, he, he was arbitration guy already. Fair enough. Okay. Super two. I think he was a super two. Yeah, super two. Right. Yeah. Barreto could still could still win it. I mean, if he turns into a Hall of Famer or if he turns into, I don't know, if he turned into Eric Ibar, just to name a guy, uh-huh. would, would that? I think that if he did... Then there's still a chance that on a you know a wars per dollars kind of a way of looking at it, the A's could still end up getting the most wars for slightly fewer dollars, but they're way out in the future, and you have to decide how much to discount way out in the future. You could also make the case, not that the A's saw knew that this was going to be the case, but you could make the case that the A's didn't actually lose anything because if they'd gotten Josh Donaldson this year, they would have finished essentially exactly where they did right uh, in the AOS. Although even that is kind of a thorny issue. I mean, for one thing, if he'd had an MVP first half, they maybe could have gotten more for him when they traded him. Oh and yeah, definitely so could have gotten. That's part of it. Well, maybe could have gotten more. Should've, I was going to say definitely could have, but. I mean, he was a superstar already. He was so. a superstar already and you might Probably have a year fewer, less of team control. So. And fewer, fewer buyers perhaps. Yeah, so maybe he could have gotten more. The other thing is that, I mean, the A's were a 68-win team that for most of the season had underlying numbers that suggested they should be much better than that. I mean, their Pythagorean record was a 77-win team, and their base runs record might have been even better. They had a total bullpen collapse and terrible record in one-run games and all of that. And so you don't really know how to evaluate that, like, if Bean thought, well, right. we're going to be a, a 73-win team or something, then that is different than if he thought they were going to be a 85-win team well, and still and, traded Donaldson. Yeah, and also underperforming your your Pythag is kind of like butterfly effect territory, right? Like yeah. if, if they were that good, and even if we assume that they were that good, well, then, the I mean, the distribution of the runs weren't going to necessarily like if you replay the universe the distribution of the runs is probably not going to turn up uh, in the most disadvantaged way po- disadvantageous way possible uh-huh. so just having i mean if he i don't know like the whole you have to decide how real the underperforming of one's <laughs> pythagorean record is you could make the case that if he had just traded josh donaldson 40 seconds later then the whole world is different. And if the A's play exactly to the same talent level that they demonstrated uh, in 2015, but with a 40 seconds later, different world uh-huh. sequence of events, they might've won 94. Like the, if the, the, the stable thing is talent level, the unstable thing is incredibly bad luck and a uh, bad sequencing. And so I, yeah, I mean, it, I don't know how you play that out. It's too complicated <laughs> yeah. to think about it. I mean, okay, look, I think that it is probably the case, probably the case, and I don't know that this is satisfying to say, and I don't know if it, we need to 
to go there. But if they, if you just swap out Josh Donaldson for Brett Laurie uh, and, you know, and Nolan and Craven and then replay the season, the A's probably win the AL West. Uh, wait, you think that's I, likely? Yeah, because I'm not going to dock them 10 wins for bad luck or 15 wins or whatever it was. Yeah, except that <laughs> I don't know. But, but I don't think you can. I don't think that that leads you anywhere useful, though. Like I like I'm saying that it is probably true in my mind, but it is not useful in in analyzing. Uh-huh. Like I had to say it because it is true in my head, and I'm here talking, and that's what I'm. This is what you're asking me to talk. You're asking me to say what is happening in your brain right now, Sam. So that happened in my brain, and I said it. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I don't. I don't think that leads anywhere useful. Yeah. So, so that's, I'm saying I'm building a a brick wall and saying that road is a dead end. Let's back up and go somewhere else. Okay. All right. Now, (laughs) so we're going to remove the, well, the A's lost anyway factor. Uh, All right. All right. So then here's where I think this trade in retrospect gets much, much worse for Billy Bean. And this is, this is just, you know, bad luck and it's all narrative and it's not pure analytics. It's not any analytics, but okay. So he trades Josh Donaldson for a package of stuff that a lot of people didn't like as much. It's baffling. We talk about it. It's interesting. And it comes up in all this discussion that Josh Donaldson was kind of irreverent toward Billy Bean and kind of insulting to him, right? Publicly and uh, directly, right? Uh And so then people who want to build a, a, you know, a, a case against Billy Bean as a GM or as a leader, uh, go, oh, look at that. Thin-skinned, tr- can't even take criticism, and therefore trades away his, his best player. Uh, what a dope. And that's a fairly fringe viewpoint. Like, you and I would not hold to that viewpoint, I think, probably, probably, mm-hmm. based on what we know. And uh, probably most people don't. Like, that is a that is an internet uh, message board kind of viewpoint, right? It would be, yes. it would be lost to the uh, minority v- uh, view uh, in history, but then, it, but then Josh Donaldson goes and does something that makes this trade extremely memorable. Like if Josh Donaldson had just been an all-star, then fine, this trade would just go down as oh, it wasn't a very good trade. It was you know better than the Hudson trade and worse than the Mulder trade. You know, somewhere in a very long career of Billy Bean moves, this would go down as one of his lesser ones. Like maybe this would be like the Jim Johnson trade, and you know people would remember it some but they wouldn't talk about it a lot but instead this will maybe go down particularly if the a's were to say struggle for the next four years say um this will go down as maybe one of the defining moves of his later career and uh therefore the uh i would guess that the fringe view that this was a personal issue uh that billy bean allowed uh to uh spread into his decision making uh, will be repeated probably uh-huh. in a you know by some historian 60 years from now even like this will this trade will now uh, become one of those few moments from history uh, that uh, stands up above the rest of you know the moments of history uh, and because of that I think Billy Bean will probably be linked to that accusation for decades and all because Josh Johnson did something, extremely memorable that right. he didn't it doesn't he, help that the blue jays became the best team in baseball right and yeah made the playoffs for the first time in decades exactly and, like like <laughs> you could imagine that like if josh Don, if he traded josh donaldson 
to, you know, the Diamondbacks and Josh Donaldson had been like a seven win player and the Diamondbacks had won 83 games and Donaldson had finished fourth in MVP voting, then I don't think this trade gets remembered for as long as it does. But yeah, the fact that I mean, how there's got to be fun facts about trading an MVP, right? Like this has to be the first time an MVP has been traded in 60 years or something, probably Uh, like like on the eve of winning an yeah, MVP? Yeah, exactly. Like this probably never happens. This will be a trivia question, uh, on, you know, your Geico trivia question, you know, every few years and people will remember it. And yeah, the fact that the Blue Jays won the the division, that they broke this long postseason drought, that they went to the LCS, that Donaldson was the MVP, that maybe he'll win it again this year. Who knows? All serves just to make this a very long-lasting story for history. And uh, it's not one for various reasons, but, you know, especially because of this fringe accusation that he did it for spite. Uh, It's not one that plays well in his legacy. Yeah, okay. Like, it's a bummer. It's a bummer trade. (laughs) It is. It was was a trade that I, right, I I didn't like it at all at the time. You, as you say, as my recollection of our conversation was that uh, you also laughed uh, along with me at how it was difficult to, how you really had to strain to find something. And then you talked about how old he was and how uh, he's much older than Lori. And you ended up probably coming to its defense more than you felt in your heart. Uh, but that's where we were, I think, when the trade was made. Um, uh-huh. And uh, since then, events have only served to make it uh, much worse for him, if not necessarily any worse in our assessment of it. Right. Okay. All right. Uh, question from Michael with Catchella finally public. That was the name for the day at BP where all the new defensive stats came out. And Brad Osmus anointed the best defensive catcher of all time. I have some questions for the both of you. If it had been released a month earlier, do you think it would have made any impact on Osmus's Hall of Fame votes? I discussed this with other folks, and while Osmus was known as a defensive catcher, I don't think many people would have considered him the best defensive catcher ever. Do you think many of the voters consider him the best defensive catcher of all time? If Coachella's stuff came out five years ago, would he have lasted maybe an extra year on the ballot? How long would a catcher have to be considered the best defensive catcher of all time for it to be taken seriously by the electorate? So Meg Rally wrote an article for BP yesterday about some of the changes on the all-time catcher leaderboards because of these new stats. And Osmus was the biggest beneficiary of it. He was like a 16-win lifetime player before this at BP, and now he's a 40-win player. So he picked up 24 wins above replacement player, which is pretty huge. And I'm also wondering about this in relation to Jorge Posada, who is up for induction next year and lost something like 13 wins in this accounting and is like the third worst defensive catcher on the list now. So does this stuff impact their chances or should it have, I guess? can Because you often hear people say that so-and-so was the best at this one thing, and that is used as something that bolsters their Hall of Fame candidacy. And if Brad Osmus is the best defensive catcher of all time, or, you know, as closely as we can tell based on the stats we have, that's a a big point in his favor. And I wonder whether, given some years, if he had been on the ballot a few years later, after these stats had come out and been circulated, whether that would have helped him at all. I mean, he's still not a Hall of Famer, though. Right. Right. 
No. And so it's easier to say that he, sh- you know, it, it's you know that he would merit as many votes as other players of his level get. Yeah, I mean, if if David Eckstein gets votes and Garrett Anderson gets votes and Mike Sweeney gets votes, yeah. then I think certainly Osmus should get votes. But, but we don't we don't generally like applaud those votes and go. No, we don't. Those are great, accurate votes. We sort of go, huh? Who voted <laughs> right. for Mike Sweeney? Right. Yes. And so exactly. So if Osmus had gotten eight votes, would we go? Well, that's an enlightened voter, or would we go? Huh? Who used one of their ten votes on Brad Osmus? Yeah, I I think, I mean, I'm as fixated on catcher defense as anyone, but if I had a Hall of Fame vote, I would not vote for Brad Osmus because he just wasn't a good enough hitter. He was a bad hitter. And so he's not a deserving Hall of Famer. And so, yeah, I don't think he was snubbed. He was maybe snubbed in the sense that no one even thought about it. No one even considered him remotely close. And, you know, he's as good as some people who got votes or were considered for votes and he's probably better than some of them, I think. But since he doesn't deserve to be in any way, I don't really care whether he gets zero votes or four votes. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, by the way, I thought the piece that you wrote on him was tremendous. Thank one you. of, one of my favorite things you wrote this year, very close to my favorite thing you wrote this year, last year. Yeah. At least. Thanks. I like the book you wrote more. <laughs> yeah, that's good. But anyway, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that you went back and looked at what what BP annual comments I think had said about yeah, him, and essentially right. there was there was never a nice word said about him. It wasn't like, boy, this guy is a great defensive player, but he sure gives a lot of it back with his offense. It was just you know like relentless mockery of him, and uh-huh. and I think partly that's that was a reaction to what was seen as excessive praise for his defense. Yeah. And uh, so it's, it's good. I think that a big part, like, I think uh, I've said this about other defensive metrics, but I think a great thing about defensive metrics is that they, they establish the range of value more than they tell you. I mean, it's great that they tell you who's good and who's bad, but I think the most important thing that they, that they tell you is how much more valuable a good person is than a bad person is. So that simply so that you can put that in perspective. And I think if we had known that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, even without, having the detailed analysis of how good Osmus was, I think it would be much easier for writers of that era to have been able to accept, okay, well, presuming he is actually this good, presuming that all the people uh, who know catching uh, particularly well are not wrong, presuming that there's something to the uh, public uh, assessment of him, which isn't always true. In Jeter's case, for instance, it's not always true. But if it is true, here's how much praise he deserves. And I think that it would have even without knowing exactly how good Osmus was, it would have softened uh, a lot of the criticism of him, and um, you know probably treated him more fairly in his career. I uh, while we're on the topic of Matheny's, I mean of Osmus's, how does I haven't looked? How does Matheny do? Because Matheny and Osmus were in a lot of ways the same player during uh-huh. their career, and uh, and yet I haven't noticed in writing about and editing <laughs> these catcher pieces, I haven't noticed Matheny's name. No, I think I might have seen him in a comment on one of those articles from someone also bringing this up that he doesn't do that well in them. And so in a, that sort of shows the challenge of even of knowing how valuable catcher defense is uh, now, it shows how challenging it would have been to write about guys like Matheny and Osmus 10 or 15 years ago because, in fact, uh, while Osmus was deserving of great praise uh, and much of the great praise that he got from traditionalists, 
Matheny was exactly probably as overrated, or maybe not, but uh, for the sake of keeping the sentence shorter, exactly as overrated uh, as the uh, probably uh, BP uh, mind thought that he was. Right. And it's confusing from an evaluation perspective because both of those guys had great defensive reputations, but the stats say only one of them really fully deserved it. Like uh, Osmus's Osmus's career fielding runs above average now is 261 yeah. in the positive and Matheny's is 17.7. Yeah. Which so. is a, an amazing, like that's a, that's an amazing difference. And if you believe that we can measure this stuff now, and I do, it really is. I, it's funny because wow. I mean, Osmus, the Osmus case is just such an endorsement of expertise and the eye test yeah. and the value of, uh, of baseball experience. And Matheny is such an indictment of the same that, that is set, like, I think if you did a Krasnick and pulled GMs 15 years ago about which one was better, made 10, I don't know how many years, uh, which one was better, it probably would have been pretty close to a split vote. And uh-huh. in fact, one guy is average and the other is the greatest of all time. Yeah. Jeff Paternostro wrote an interesting article as part of that big rollout also about just how it's difficult to scout this stuff because you sit behind home plate to watch baseball if you're a scout often, or even if you're down the lines or something, you can kind of tell how a catcher receives the ball. I mean, you could tell if he's doing something really bad and obviously you can scout his blocking and his throwing and everything, but the receiving is such a subtle skill that it can be difficult if you can't actually see his glove. So yeah, I talked to a uh, I talked to a scout who was behind the plate one time about how confident he was in his assessment of framing, uh-huh. and uh, he was a former catcher, and he said that he thought he was very good that he could tell within a couple of pitches, and uh, I think that he is probably uh, that is. I think that you probably can tell in a couple of pitches a, a good percentage of a player's technique. Like you can probably see it. You can probably see it just the way he, I don't know. I don't know how general I'm willing to get, but you might be able to see it in the way he walks. You know, you might be able to see it in his eyes. Like you might be able to see into his framing soul, but certainly just by his technique, you can probably pick up a lot very quickly and very easily. But yeah, from behind, I was sitting there when he told me this and I was thinking, we can't even see his glove. Right. Like, how are you, how, how, how are you doing it? Yeah. By the way, so 2000 to 2006, uh, these are the uh, NL Gold Glove winners for catcher. Matheny, Osmus, Osmus, Matheny, Matheny, Osmus. And so they, that's a split. I mean, they were, for those seven years, Matheny won it four times, Osmus won it three. Neither one won it before or after. And so in their heydays, uh, they were both in the same league. Uh, and they were basically split with Matheny getting one more. All right. I do think it could hurt Posada's case, by the way. I don't know that Posada had that I don't think strong Posada case great, anyway. Yeah. It's kind of an outside case. Yeah, but I agree. the fact that he was seen as a poor defensive catcher and this supports that certainly might, you know, whatever support he might have had. Like if he had been a, a Piazza kind of case where – Piazza had a, a bad defensive reputation, but the stats say, no, he was actually good. If Posada had had that, then maybe that could have pushed him into the actually should be a Hall of Fame category, but it pushes him the other way. So, And Kelvin says, though I am not an avid NFL fan anymore, I found myself captivated by the Packers versus Cardinals game on Saturday. 
and one moment in particular, the overtime coin toss. If you haven't seen it by now, the referee for the game botched the coin toss by tossing it directly in the air without the coin flipping. The players and referee all noticed this gaffe, and so the referee reflipped the coin successfully this time. Flipping a coin is obviously as easy a task as one can be assigned, and this was such awe-inducing gaffe for me. I've been trying to figure out a baseball equivalent for this scenario, and I simply cannot. Is there any task so mundane that an umpire could butcher it so badly that it would be on par with failing to flip a coin in overtime during a playoff game? I think simply, like if you were the home plate umpire and you just forgot to watch the pitch. Like they (laughs) throw a pitch and you just were looking off somewhere else. Uh And you heard it and you looked back and you thought you had to ask. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. I think. If you try to brush off, brush the dirt off the plate and you brush more dirt onto the plate. Yeah, but time is called and (laughs) you can, you know, you can take another swing at it. It's not like, you know, you have to, it's not like you have to take a run off the board Uh or anything. (laughs) Right. Well, the coin flip was just a do-over. Yeah, but you had to take, you took, you had to take possession away from a team that had possession. Right. Yeah. At least, at least for a moment. Yeah, I don't play know. was you, affected. You try to call the replay people in New York, and instead you just call a wrong number. But then you just would <laughs> dial it again. <laughs> I don't know. It's not like you'd get. It's not like you'd be like, "Well, I got Joey now. Joey <laughs> has to decide." <laughs> yeah, there's no perfect equivalent. Joey's yeah, on your TV. Just not watching. Just uh, spacing out. I remember seeing. This is not the answer, but I remember seeing. A guy hit a home run uh, that was called fair, uh, and it landed. I don't know. It it was it, it was just just deep enough for a home run. So this wasn't like one of those high ones that you know you you're like you lose it in the sun or anything like that. So this was just a, a normal home run that landed in like the third row, and it was probably ten feet foul, and it was called fair, uh-huh. <laughs> and it was the most like nobody the, like the team that got the home run was laughing on the bench the next ball that was hit like 75 feet foul and they called foul got a huge bronx cheer like everybody in the stadium knew it every like the announcers knew it we all knew it it was the weirdest thing and i mean just like by a good maybe 10 feet is an exaggeration but like six feet isn't yeah there was there was a moment in a stompers game this summer i think i mentioned in the book actually where one of our players Fouled, oh, right. He foul tipped. He fouled off a pitch and he had two strikes on him. So the entire team, our dugout was saying foul, foul, because they were worried that the umpire was going to call him out. And instead, the umpire called it a ball. <laughs> <laughs> and our player walked uh, on a foul tip, <laughs> which I've never seen in the major. So that's pretty bad. That's about as bad as not watching at all. I had a, this is off topic, but uh, one of our scouts for the Stumpers uh, played high school ball and uh, his coach had a secret play that they would use if they needed a run late. So if he got a runner on, if he, oh no, it was, it was, if he ever got runners on second and third with less than two outs, what he would do is call for the squeeze because if the guy gets the bunt down and then the throw goes to first and nobody is watching home plate anymore because nobody's watching the guy at the trailing runner Uh there's only two umpires so nobody's watching the trailing runner so the guy on third comes in to score 
and then the guy on second just cuts straight across. <laughs> like he, well, he cuts, you know, he cuts 20 feet off the yeah. corner and then just comes straight home. And only one person in the stadium is positioned to see it. And that's the third baseman, assuming that the bunt doesn't go to third base. And so the third baseman is just completely losing his mind. Like he's Mr. Robot. Like he's the only person in the world who can see this and he's yelling and he's so certain, but there's nothing anybody can do. And uh, that was a real play that they really would run in, in high school, like a high school coach. I love that. That is. Weren't there like 1890s Orioles known for doing that? Yeah. John McGraw teams. I think it was. Yeah. There was definitely the cutting over the mound. Yeah. The, the, cause I think then there was only one up. And so when, if there was a ball hit to the outfield and he had to turn his back, then the umpire would, uh, then the uh, runner would cut straight across. Mm-hmm. Matthew says, "I was thinking about the minor leaguers class action suit, uh, which we discussed with Nathaniel Grow last week, and was curious of the potential domino effects if the court rules in favor of the players. If the players were to be paid actual minimum wage, would teams just take the cut in revenue? Would we see a spike in ticket and merchandise pricing for minor league teams? Would we see teams reduce?" their number of minor league teams or players, or would we see some other consequence? So I was thinking teams have six affiliates, generally something like that. So each team has say 150 minor leaguers or something in that ballpark. And you have 30 teams. And so that's 4,500 minor leaguers. There was an article in Sports Illustrated about that case and the lawyer who wrote it claimed that a lot of minor leaguers make between $3,500 and $7,000 a year total for playing. So if we put the middle in, you know, 5000 or something, 4,500 players times $5,000 is $22,500,000. So even if you doubled that, and, and that's spread across 30 teams, so, you know, $22 million over 30 teams is not much at all for for teams. And so even if you doubled that, even if you tripled that, you wouldn't think it would be such a significant expense that a team would consider, say, cutting teams or cutting players, right? Like now we talk about teams don't spend enough on minor leaguers' nutrition. They should spend more on minor league playing conditions because if it leads to one more good major league player, then you justify all the expense and maybe we'd be saying the same thing if teams you know if like if the marlins cut an affiliate or something because they didn't want to pay for minor leaguers who were actually making minimum wage then we would say it's short-sighted it's inefficient you get one player from that team it pays for all the other players so i don't know that it would uh make much of a difference which maybe just goes to show how wrong it is that they are paid so little because teams could afford so much more. Do you think it would be in any way an expense that would force teams to make cuts or raise prices? Or would they just say, well, okay, (laughs) that was nice while it lasted. We got away with it for a while. Yeah, I think mostly it would just, if if anything, I think it might quietly uh, affect free agent contracts for big Uh leaguers. Like there might be slightly less money Uh to throw around to Josh Hamilton. Yeah. But yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, look, the there's not really another option for major league teams. They need they need the farm system set up. Now right. there's an option for the owners of the teams. If the owners of the teams themselves had to start paying more, if their expenses went way up, then 
you know, you could see them going out of business, which is why MLB subsidizes and pays for these salaries. Uh, and so that wouldn't be a factor. I, I don't think, I think MLB would pay 10 times what they pay for the farm system. Maybe uh-huh. not 10 times, but maybe 10 times what they pay for the farm system if they had to. They just don't have to. Right. That's what I was thinking also. Okay. So that is it. You can replenish our email stock at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. We'll get to that next week. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Recently described by a commenter in the group as the only thing left that salvages Facebook. Have people been rating and reviewing? They have. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a while since you've asked, but it is important to you. They, uh, they continue to trickle in and I continue to enjoy the compliments. Ben, that's really the only place that Ben gets validation yeah. for, for his life's choices. Pretty much, yeah. So, <laughs> And you can support our sponsor, The Play Index, at baseballreference.com. Use the coupon code BP when you subscribe to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Big weekend. Looking forward to this weekend. We've got a blizzard coming. Going to go sledding in Central Park. Going to watch the Royal Rumble and watch X-Files. Can't wait for this weekend. Hope you all enjoy the weekend as much as I will. We will be back next week. Well, this might be an opportunity to uh, get you to predict (laughs) the coin flip. If you want to, it's got to be on a surface that'll make enough noise. Okay, don't screw it up like the ref. Oh, am I flipping? Yeah. I don't know if you could predict over Skype. I don't know if I could either. I don't All know right. if you could predict, period, but you seem to think you can. I, I do think I can. All right, hang on. I'm getting a coin. I'm getting a quarter. I'm going to flip it on my kitchen floor. I'm going to let it land. Do you claim that you can always predict or that you can predict more than random? I, so here's the thing. I am worried that I'm now overthinking things. Like when you go to England and you're like, okay, you got to drive on the left. 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 And what you're really saying is do the opposite, do the opposite, do the opposite. And eventually you start doing the opposite of the opposite. And now you're in trouble again. (laughs) I'm worried. I'm worried that I'm no longer trusting my instinct. And so, so far it hasn't been an issue, but I'm worried that I'm going to end up thinking too much and no longer doing, you know, the, the good blink response. I but see. but no, uh, so to answer your question, no, I believe I can do it with, you know, something like 90% certainty. And I also believe that I have perhaps by acknowledging this skill uh, now reduced my ability to replicate it. <laughs> okay. All right. So I'm going to flip the coin. I'm going to flip the coin in the on the kitchen floor, let it land. You call heads or tails. I will then predict heads or tails, and then I will see whether it is heads or tails, okay? Okay. So don't uh, call until I have a chance to hear it. Oh, you know what? Just call it. Just call it right now. Okay. Heads. Okay. You call heads. All right. Now I'm going to flip and then predict. Okay. I have an answer. It is going to be heads. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's tails. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least Dang you win. <laughs> Doggone it. <laughs> Ah, uh, all right. I might have to work on this. <laughs> <laughs> okay.